the Jodcast, as interviewed on Radio 5, with Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast, September issue. Hello and welcome to the September issue of the Jodcast. I'm down here in Birmingham and in the new, new Manchester studios. Here's, uh, we've got Nick and Stuart. Hi guys. Hi there. Hello Dave. Hello Stuart. Hi, Hi Nick. Hi Dave. Hi Stuart. You say new studios, it's actually still someone's office. We're just in a new building, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have just had um, the month of August off, or at least the second half of it off. Yes, so we're all back and ready to go for a... New season of Jodcast Podcasts. And this month's is no exception because we have such a lot lined up for you. We have an interview with Gregor Morphil, one of the directors of the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics, whose research questions the very basis of what we think of as life. Yes, it was very enjoyable talking to him. It was fascinating stuff, so do check out that interview. Looking forward to it. And we've also got part one of an interview with Sir Bernard Lovell, who was the gentleman who set up the Jodrell Bank facility over 50 years ago. But first, here's a couple of postcards that we have received here at the Jodcast. First of all, one from Jason Hill, uh, sending us postcards from Sheffield. Thank you very much. And one which takes the record for the most long-distance postcard reaching us here at the Jodcast from Antarctica. So, So thank you very much to Andrew for sending that one in. Please keep the postcards coming in. We love hearing from you guys wherever you are, so please do send us your postcards. That's right. You can get in touch with us at the Jodrell Bank Observatory, or you can send us feedback off the web. Just go to our our website, www.jodcast.net, and send us an email from there. And this is what Larry Hunt, Roger McMinn, and Stuart Pitt have done. So thank you very much to those three. Yes, thank you very much, people. Yep, and on iTunes, thank you to a whole load of people who've been giving us reviews during August. Um, Even though we only had one show, we have Is There Anyone Out There? Lansker. Doremi, Chris NB, Failed Physicist, and Mr. Potato Head. So thank you very much to those people for giving us reviews on iTunes. Very helpful to have um, feedback from you folk out there. Let us know how we're doing and what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. Please let us know how we can improve things, and please keep on sending us feedback. We are. We're even taking into account that we got a letter from someone complaining about the music we put on behind the news. That's right. So there will be no background music in the news, but feel free to hum along. (laughs) So yes, before that... We do have the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Discovery of a tail caused by the star Myra. Giant void found in the constellation of Eridanus. And the rings of Uranus seen edge on for the first time. Astronomers using the Galaxy Evolution Explorer, or GALAX, satellite have discovered a huge comet-like tail caused by the star Myra. Situated in the constellation of Cetus, Myra is a well-observed variable star which is shedding large amounts of material in a strong stellar wind. Galax observes the universe at ultraviolet wavelengths, and using its instruments, a team led by Christopher Martin at the California Institute of Technology have discovered a huge wake of material left behind the star as it moves through space at 291,000 miles per hour. Myra is actually a multiple star system, the brightest of which, Myra A, is a red giant, while the fainter companion, known as Myra B, is thought to be a white dwarf. The wake of material being shed for Myra A is an impressive 13 light-years in length and is only visible in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum where Galax observes. 
As the star system moves through space, the material being shed from the surface of the red giant adds important elements such as carbon and oxygen to the interstellar medium. By studying the light from the tail, astronomers hope to see how the star has evolved over time. Over the last decade, surveys of the sky have shown that matter in the universe clusters into filaments and sheets surrounding voids empty of material. Now, using data from a survey carried out using an array of radio telescopes in America, astronomers have discovered a huge void in space, much larger than any previously seen. The area of space, in the constellation Eridanus, is nearly a billion light-years across and is empty of galaxies, stars and even dark matter. It was discovered by a University of Minnesota team using data from our survey known as the NVSS, an all-sky survey conducted using the Very Large Array, a collection of 27 radio telescopes situated in the New Mexico desert. The void lines up with a so-called cold spot in maps of the cosmic microwave background made by the WMAP satellite. It is thought that the cold spot is caused by the void. The presence of dark energy causes light passing through the void to lose a little more energy than light travelling through normal space containing large amounts of matter, an effect known as the integrated Sachs-Wolf effect. The same theory also predicts that clusters of galaxies should be associated with warm spots in the cosmic microwave background, an effect which has already been verified. Although we now know that the void is there, it is still not certain how it formed in the first place. Uranus has been known to have a faint ring system since 1977, and it has been imaged many times since it was discovered. At the moment, astronomers are making use of the fact that the ring system is currently edge-on when viewed from Earth, an event that only happens once every 42 years. Since the rings were only discovered 30 years ago, this is the first time that telescopes here on Earth have been able to image the rings edge-on. Astronomers have been making use of this opportunity to image the rings both with the Hubble Space Telescope and the Keck Telescope on Hawaii. Astronomers hope that the observations will allow them to better understand the dynamics of the ring system itself, as well as possibly discover new moons, which are usually hidden in the glare from the rings, which appear much brighter when seen from other angles. The observations from the Keck Telescope have already shown that the system is significantly different to how it appeared when the Voyager 2 spacecraft imaged it as it flew past the planet in 1986. They also hope to detect warps and waves in the structure of the ring system, effects which are much easier to see when the rings are edge-on. And finally, Brian May defended his PhD thesis on August 23rd. Having started his research project at Imperial College London 36 years ago, he finally submitted his thesis earlier in August, and defended it during a Viva examination which lasted three hours. His thesis, titled Radial Velocities in the Zodiacal Dust Cloud, involved observing with telescopes on La Palma in the Canary Islands. Thanks, Megan. And if you haven't seen that picture of the star Myra that's um, going through the universe, do have a look at it because it is an incredible picture. It is really nice. Um, We'll put a link to that in our show notes. So if people just go to the website www.jodcast.net and go to the archive for September 2007, um, we'll put a link to it there. Great. And also, also in the news, I think we ought to say, uh, Dr. Brian May has successfully defended his PhD thesis. Yes, yes. fantastic. So Rockstar makes good with his PhD thesis. That's, that's fantastic news. Yeah. And that was all about uh, dust in the zodiacal field. It's all about radial velocities in the zodiacal dust cloud. We were going to try and get him on, but he's a bit busy. Yeah. What does, what does radial velocities in the zodiacal um, dust cloud mean? Well, I guess we'll just have to um, read Dr. Brian May's PhD thesis to learn about that. Okay. I'm going to listen to it with Queen in the background. (laughs) (laughs) What's the best track to pick to listen? Oh, I don't know.
So from one person working in the field of dust to another, here's Nick with this month's interview. The question of whether life is unique to planet Earth or if it abounds in the universe has vexed astronomers, biologists, physicists, cosmologists and philosophers for decades. Now, a group of physicists have discovered that dust particles in a plasma can form complicated structures capable of self-replication and adaptation. The results challenge our concept of life itself. I spoke by phone with Professor Gregor Morfil, one of the directors of the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in Germany. What we studied was uh, to identify equilibrium structures of uh, small dust particles that are strongly interacting. So this goes back to a discovery we made in uh, 1994 uh, when we found out experimentally this time that uh, plasmas, which is regarded as the most disordered state of matter, that uh, plasmas under certain conditions can also be very regular, very ordered, crystalline or liquid structures. So since then, ourselves plus uh, over 100 groups worldwide have uh, taken up this research and have started to investigate the properties of uh, this new state of matter. Uh, and uh, that's basically where we started from and uh, the result that you are particularly interested in uh, was uh, in part experimental, in part theoretical to identify what are the equilibrium structures that these particles take up uh, in free space when external forces are uh, as small as possible so there's not much of a perturbation. You're essentially looking at the physics of dust in, in a plasma charged dust particles in a plasma in the state where they're sufficiently close together that they can feel uh, the forces from their neighbors, the electrostatic forces from their neighbors. Okay, all right. Well, let's start off with what do we mean by a plasma? Now, we quite often hear that a plasma is, or plasma is, the fourth state of matter. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit more what a plasma is? Okay. Uh, A plasma consists of charged particles, Uh, positive ions and negative electrons and uh, usually uh, the the reason why they're called the fourth state of matter is uh, as you increase the temperature of ordinary matter you go from solid to liquid to vapor or gas and then as the atoms dissociate uh, into their constituents of electrons and ions into a plasma. Basically what a plasma is it's, uh, it's the most disordered and usually also the hottest state Uh, that matter is in, like the sun is a a ball of plasma uh, to all intents and purposes. But they're also cold plasmas. They're used in uh, in industrial manufacturing of chips and plasma vapor deposition in making flat screens and so on. So plasmas are basically everywhere. Most of the uh, visible universe is made of plasmas. And uh, it's a very ubiquitous and very interesting state where... Uh, because of the electric charges, interactions with magnetic fields are very important. And because it's so ubiquitous, it comes in so many forms and shapes. Uh, it's uh, one of the big areas of study, not least of them being the plasma fusion uh, program, which is trying to replicate the processes that make energy on the sun. As a power source for us, isn't as it? As a power source, mm. yes. So is it, as plasma is one of these ubiquitous 
properties of the universe. We also know that uh, dust is pretty much everywhere in the universe. It's an uh, important component. True. So yeah. I suppose the connection between how does dust behave in a plasma has a very strong uh, astrophysical set of implications, I should think. Absolutely. Uh, you wouldn't have uh, planets like the Earth if you didn't have dust in the universe that was able during the process of star formation to form the little blobs that uh, circle around the stars, the, the, the terrestrial-type planets. Uh, also, when you're looking at interstellar clouds, uh, these are called dark clouds to some extent because uh, they're so full of tiny little dust particles that cut out the light from the stars beyond them, and so they appear dark. And they make up, in our own galaxy, in the Milky Way, uh, something like 10% or so of, of the total mass. Mm. The rest is in st- most of it is in stars, of course. Right. So let's return to specifically your research. You're looking again uh, at the physics of this dust in the plasma. First of all, what's the dust? What is the dust? What's it made of? Um, could be anything. The, uh, for our laboratory experiments, uh, of course, we want to have uh, very uh, controlled conditions. So uh, we choose particles that are uh, all as much as possible of the same size with a very small size variation and these are ones that you can buy uh, commercially are usually plastic particles or they can be metal coated the most commonly used type of particle is what's called melamine formaldehyde so these are just polymer particles how do they compare to dust particles that we presume exist in these dark clouds in space we know from the infrared signatures that uh, there is a lot of ice uh, that has condensed out onto Uh, small particles, and we know that uh, most of the heavy elements uh, should end up in the form of tiny dust particles. So uh, once you know what the cosmic abundance is of uh, the different elements above uh, hydrogen and helium, then uh, that's basically what, uh, what makes up the composition of the dust particles in outer space. Now, your research started off presumably with a touch of theory, to, uh, looking at how dust particles could interact with each other, how they're attracted and how they could possibly sit next to each other in specific shapes. You talked about equilibrium states. Can you explain that a little bit more? Please? Okay, the original theory, uh, uh, the very earliest paper on that was by uh, a guy called Ikezi, uh, and he speculated in, in physics of fluids that if you brought charged dust particles uh, to a sufficiently high density... Uh, that they could spontaneously self-organize to form uh, crystalline states. And I was very interested in that at the time, started to work on that. Uh, This was just pure theory. Realized that that this theory was incomplete uh, and started to uh, improve things until I got convinced, yes, uh, it should actually happen. Then... Next thing that I wanted to do, being a theoretician, I didn't want to do experiments myself. <laughs> so I talked to some colleagues and explained what I wanted, and they all said, oh, forget it, this is only theory and it's too adventurous. Uh, we have more important things to do. <laughs> and so eventually uh, I decided, okay, if I really want to find out uh, and nobody uh, wants to do this experiment for me, I have to do it myself. And then uh, you do what you 
what you always do. Uh, you pick the cheapest path possible, uh, and that means you persuade a PhD student and you try and borrow some equipment from somewhere, and that's exactly what I did. So there's a colleague in Cologne uh, who had some uh, equipment in a laboratory that he was going to scrap, and I asked him, could we have it for a day uh, or a year or two years, whatever it took, and uh, then I was really very, very fortunate uh, with the PhD student. Uh, the guy, his name is Hubertus Thomas, and uh, he's an absolutely gifted experimentalist. And uh, I asked him if he would be interested in doing such a, a long-shot experiment, and he thought about it for a while, and he said, yeah, why not? Brave man. The, yeah, brave man. <laughs> uh, but uh, I basically I told him, okay, the probability that it'll work is, uh, is tiny, uh, the importance, to, uh, if if it does work and we discover it, is is large. The product is finite. <laughs> so uh, what do you think? And it, it didn't take long for him to say, okay, why not? And uh, so uh, an interesting story, he called me up one day, or no, he sent me a letter saying that, well, according to this theory that he's now worked through, uh, we should be getting these crystalline plasma, these plasma crystals uh, all the time, and uh, there must be something wrong. And while I was still pondering that, uh, he called me up and uh, said, oh, come to the lab immediately. We could see that it was working, and uh, since then we published that. There's a, a really rather nice article that uh, Sir John Maddox, who was editor of Nature at that time, uh, wrote about this discovery because we didn't publish it in Nature. That really led to uh, an incredible development with exponential growth in this field. You know, the advantage is you can really look at uh, at these systems uh, in slow motion because the particles are so heavy, the timescales are stretched. What is normally in, in atoms uh, in the order of uh, 10 megahertz or so uh, in these systems is 100 hertz, uh, and the particles are bigger. You can see each individual one with a CCD camera. You can follow all the critical processes that normally you can't see, like what happens during the details when something melts or condenses and, and so on. Uh, you can follow all that uh, very easily. Plus, you can uh, investigate what happens at the limit of cooperative behavior, when, when you really go to the smaller and smaller nanosystems, you can see uh, the individual particles behaving differently uh, depending on where you are. So there's a, a huge area where I think physics will be improved or uh, where we know the processes better by having such new techniques uh, in hand. Mm -hmm. That's part of the interest in doing this. The other part is uh, that, uh, of course, these uh, complex plasmas, as they're called, with the tiny microparticles inside, they represent the uh, plasma state of soft matter. And soft matter that includes uh, emulsions, colloids, sponges, uh, polymers, and so on in the solid and liquid states. And uh, it was really not uh, thought possible uh, at the time that there could be a plasma state of soft matter. Right. And uh, is this because the plasma, by its very nature, is a hot, disordered, yeah, it's hot, angry it's thing? It's disordered, and soft matter has to have certain uh, properties. You have to be able, uh, using external forces, to uh, organize the structures inside. You have to uh, 
uh, you had to have this uh, extreme uh, compressibility and expansion back to its original state and so on. So, you know, there's a special kind of supramolecular uh, system and it's also commercially very important. Right. Now, there's an important point that you mentioned that this sort of soft matter or this, this, this kind of matter, this soft matter, requires external forces to become organized in some way. But these shapes, these, these formations of dust in the plasmas that you're studying, they're self-organizing. They organize themselves into these very unique shapes. Tell us a little bit about these specific shapes that you've discovered. Okay. Uh, in the laboratory, of course, where uh, gravity plays an important role, the shape is de- determined by the external forces. Uh, this is if you, like if you take a glass of water, the water adjusts to its uh, external shape uh, and uh, the fact that gravity is there. In free space, a drop of water would be spherical mm. and it would be held together by surface tension. So this is a force that it essentially makes itself. Uh, now, these complex plasmas... Uh, on Earth, similar, of course, the microparticles are very heavy, so gravity plays an important role. In space, which is uh, where we have an experiment uh, since 2001 on the International Space Station, uh, we can observe these things under much less perturbed conditions, and so we can learn a lot more about uh, the processes that uh, do not require so much uh, energy or forces to uh, perturb things. And then using uh, numerical techniques and numerical simulations to go on from what we've learned from Earth, from space experiments, uh, to a situation which is completely free of surrounding influences, you can then make that step uh, with a fair degree of confidence and uh, you can calculate what kind of structures these things would uh, self-organize into. The interesting thing there is that, uh, of course, these particles in a plasma all carry uh, usually a negative charge unless photoeffect plays a role. Uh, so let's just ignore photoeffect for a moment and say we, we only have negative particles. They should really repel each other. So yes. uh, there should be no equilibrium state, naively thinking. When you do the, uh, the full theory, uh, you realize what you actually have is a a dissipative system where plasma particles attach themselves to the small microparticles. So when an ion hits it, uh, it gets one positive charge element. When an electron hits it, a negative one. Then the two recombine on the surface. So the the plasma uh, has to be resupplied from the outside. So you can imagine you have a a huge cloud of these uh, small particles Uh, there's constantly plasma flowing in to replenish what is being uh, removed on the inside by the interactions there. And this flow of plasma from the outside, of course, acts like a self-confinement, and so it compresses the cloud and has a a very similar role as the surface tension does. And that's why you end up uh, even uh, in outer space uh, with particles of the same type Uh, you end up uh, getting self-confinement and structure formation. And that's an essential element of uh, dissipative systems, of course. Hmm. So it's remarkable that these dust particles, all with a similar charge, they actually can sit next to each other quite happily without constantly pushing themselves away. Um, Well, that's uh, that's only possible because there's an attractive component. 
uh, in the interaction as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is uh, provided by the flow of the ion and electron plasma in the system. Uh, for instance, uh, another uh, important aspect would be shadowing. This is a little bit like uh, the uh, cyclists at the Tour de France, uh, whether they're doped or not. Uh, they, they like to be <laughs> in the uh, shadow of the person uh, in front so that they don't have to do so much work. Uh, and uh, it's, it's quite well known in hydrodynamics as the Bernoulli effect. It also works in plasmas. Uh, if, they, if you have two particles very close to one another, uh, the surrounding plasma will hit uh, the one next to it, uh, but there will be a shadow uh, from the particle, from the neighbor particle on, on the original one, so that uh, there's a force actually attracting them in, in spite of the fact that uh, the electric force will repel. And then it's just a question... Uh, where does one or the other force uh, become more important? And uh, when you work all these things out, it turns out that there is actually an attractive component to the interaction between two particles like that. It's fantastic. So at some point, these two little particles, if we're just considering two particles at the moment, there will be a point in space where the attractive force and the repulsive force cancel out and the two particles can be, in some sense, joined. Uh, that's the equilibrium position. So the particles, uh, of course, they are some distance apart. And in our lab experiments, uh, the distance between the particles where they come to equilibrium is about 50 to 100 times as far away as the particle size themselves. Uh, you can illuminate the particles in different uh, layers, and you can scan right through such a cloud and uh, calculate the, or measure the structure uh, that these particles have. Hmm. And what do these structures look like? Um, different. In, uh, in the laboratory experiments, for instance, we can get uh, crystalline structures with the standard crystalline forms that are also observed uh, in uh, ordinary matter. We can have uh, the body-centered cubic or face-centered cubic or hexagonal close-packed and so on. Uh, this depends a little bit on the conditions that uh, are Uh, chosen for the experiments, but uh, these are all the standard crystalline structures that we can have. Uh, In space, uh, in the simulations, uh, in addition, uh, it turns out that uh, what seems to be a a fairly nice uh, equilibrium structure that develops uh, is the uh, helical structure, or the double helix even. Now, this is something which has caused a lot of interest around the world, of course, (laughs) and that is when we start talking about double helixes, we instantly think about uh, DNA, which is the encoding of life as we understand it. And, uh, of course, if we start talking about uh, double helices of uh, dust in space, we start uh, start shouting aliens. So (laughs) please tell us what your thoughts are on this. Uh, okay, I think that's a uh, too simplistic way, uh, simply because you have a, a double helix. I mean, we can manufacture these on Earth, but we wouldn't call, call these uh, structures that we manufacture then aliens. The interesting thing from my point of view is uh, that these kind of structures uh, occur quite naturally and spontaneously with quite elementary uh, forces, electrostatic forces. And... Uh, there's always been this argument about uh, you know, making complex molecules like the DNA structures that have these particular bindings that allow the encoding of information, uh, that this, uh, if it's done randomly, would take longer than the age of the universe, and therefore life couldn't exist. 
so there has to be uh, some thought behind it. Uh, if the production of such structures are just a, a normal equilibrium process due to uh, the well-known forces that are acting, and if the system always would like to go into this kind of a structure simply because that's what the equilibrium does, uh, then I think uh, this is an important message that says, um, hey, it's, it's not such a rare occurrence uh, and it's something where you don't need to invoke uh, statistics because uh, nature has a better way of doing it and it's just one of the fundamental principles of trying to get to its equilibrium state. Mm, it's quite possible for a set of particles naturally to be in these extremely complicated states. It's not particularly unlikely. It's it's actually quite possible. It's, it's, um, it's not not only not unlikely, it's, <laughs> uh, it's also the preferred state. Hmm. And uh, that, I think, is uh, an important finding. Uh, it's corroborated to uh, some extent by some experiments that were done in Moscow uh, at uh, liquid helium temperatures where uh, one actually observed these uh, helical structures uh, in particle distributions uh, in the laboratory as well. There are other instances too, for instance, uh, in supercooled uh, ions in storage rings, when you uh, look at uh, the, the structures of these particles there, it's also helical. So, uh, you know, it really does seem uh, as though there's nothing magical about the helix. Uh, the magic is in this storing of information in such systems and in making it available uh, to a reproduction of some kind. Uh, that's the important point that we should talk about now is the fact that there is something important about these shapes and it is this uh, ability of them to self-replicate. Now, my biology is pretty poor, <laughs> but what I can remember is the way that the uh, double helix uh, DNA molecule replicates itself is it basically unzips the two helices apart and basically become two more separate copies. How do your structures, the structures that you theorize, uh, replicate themselves? Um, I think uh, it's more, it's uh, its not like unzipping the helix in, in the same sense. Uh, there, there are two ways of doing this. Uh, one is to, uh, of course, develop a third helix around it, and then, uh, like changing dancing partners, uh, you suddenly end up having different uh, strings together. Uh, this would be one simple way of doing it. It's just a question of where is the bond uh, stronger at the time. Uh, the other uh, way would be for uh, the system to simply uh, snip off and divide at some point and make two uh, subhelices that can then continue to grow by addition of, uh, of more particles. Another important issue is adaptation. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that natural selection likes the idea of uh, occasionally mixing things up, gene swapping and uh, fitter forms of life adapting to their environment, etc., and uh, therefore procreating. Do you see any um, evidence or channel or possibility for these sort of shapes to adapt to their environment? Um, I think they will always adapt. If the environment changes, uh, then the equilibrium state that they are searching for uh, will have to adapt to that. So uh, I think from the physical point of view, there's nothing amazing about that. Uh, from the point of view of uh, you know what, uh, what constitutes life and or life as we know it uh, i think there's a, an issue here of time scales uh, i've been thinking about that a little bit sort of on and off and i, I think if uh, if this paper leads to uh, sort of 
discussions where uh, you get replication of wine glasses in front of you. Uh, <laughs> uh, amongst people, I think uh, this will be very good. Uh, the point here is, for instance, if you imagine a life form that lives uh, forever, does it have to replicate? Not necessarily. Mm. Does it have to change to uh, with respect to changes in its environment? Uh, definitely yes, because uh, that could be threatening. Uh, so uh, I think the, the the question about what constitutes life and what doesn't uh, is at the moment a question of definition by uh, experts, and they're doing uh, whatever they can uh, to minimize uh, everything to a sufficient uh, number of conditions, and from that uh, you you get a, a sort of kind of blueprint or definition what uh, what would constitute life. Mm. So you've opened up a, an interesting debate yeah. about what is life, <laughs> what do we mean by life? Uh, and since this is only a definition uh, that the experts so far uh, have come to and have, have made and uh, so on, uh, they can be changed. Mm, of course. Whereas the systems that uh, you can study in are systems that under, underlie certain principles, chemical or physical uh, properties that we just have to come to terms with. And then, uh, to some extent, it's a question where the experts will have to say, well, do we regard something like this as life? Okay, maybe it fulfills all the requirements that we've laid down so far. Maybe we should add another one. Uh, so, you know, when, when I think about it, uh, we have two questions here. Uh, it seems that the big self-organized, uh, strongly interacting uh, clouds of dusty plasma certainly appear to have all the characteristics of what are currently believed to be the uh, necessary and sufficient conditions for defining life. And I was disturbed by that. I must say, I, I don't like the thought, quite frankly, <laughs> of a bunch of dust particles uh, being alive. We've all come to accept that a bunch of uh, lifeless atoms uh, can somehow combine to produce life. And uh, here, uh, the step would be we would have to accept that a bunch of lifeless supramolecular particles uh, can also somehow combine and produce a different form of life, maybe very primitive or whatever, but uh, according to the definitions, acceptable. I personally have a bellyache about that. <laughs> um, uh, to me, it's too alien, too, too far away, and uh, maybe... We should just use this to make sure that uh, what we believe are necessary and sufficient requirements for life should be evaluated again in, in the face of, uh, of this thing. There was a point made in the article that it might be possible to detect these structures in dark clouds using the Spitzer Space Telescope. Okay, the important uh, issue is you have to be able to look into the dark clouds, which means using infrared uh, or, or radio. Uh, the scales uh, of these systems... Uh, they should have a characteristic scale simply because the particle separation needs to be of a certain order, uh, otherwise they don't see one another. Uh, then, in order to see something, because these clouds are so many uh, parsecs away, kiloparsecs uh, sometimes, hundreds of parsecs, you would need to have sufficiently large structures because they would then emit some kind of a coherent radiation from their own interactions from their own vibrations and so on and that's what one would have to look for in principle at least uh, one can say yes uh, 
if those things exist, uh, then uh, like any regular structure, uh, they will have regular waveforms that uh, will modulate any emission and uh, that should be visible. Sounds exciting. We look forward to predictions about what we'll be able to see with uh, um, astronomical instruments, see whether these structures do actually exist. Well, we hope that uh, some of the uh, experts who are actually working on these astronomical observation programs that uh, and they understand the uh, the tools better than we do mm. and that they will start looking into what it is that would be visible and uh, would help in uh, identifying uh, exactly how big these things would have to be and what uh, what kind of signature to look forward to uh, what what time scales what frequencies thank you very very much indeed well it's a pleasure so there you go. Interesting, yeah? That's incredible. So it really does question what we mean by what is life if we can attribute uh, molecules or molecules of dust in outer space as being living things. It doesn't I would worry about my space station bedroom having self-replicating dust. Yeah, you couldn't imagine <laughs> it, could you? It's a nightmare to clean it. Well, um, coming back down to Earth, you may remember that this year is the 50th anniversary of Jodrell Bank and indeed of the space race. And the man behind Jodrell Bank Observatory was Sir Bernard Lovell. He's now in his 90s and still drops by at the observatory. Now we have the first of a three-part interview with Sir Bernard that we recorded back at the beginning of August at one of the commemoration events for the 50th anniversary. We'll be spreading the other two over September Extra and October, so there's plenty to listen to. This was recorded in front of a very large live audience inside a marquee, and the host for this occasion was Tim O'Brien. Um, Sir Bernard, uh, in the early 1930s, uh, around the same time as Carl Jansky first discovered radio waves coming from outer space, um, I think you were beginning your studies of physics at the University of Bristol. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing and maybe what inspired you to become a scientist. I was born nearly 94 years ago in um, a very small village in Gloucestershire, almost midway between Bristol and Bath. Uh, There was no transport, there were no motor cars and no aircraft, and the village was indeed quite isolated. Um, I attended the local school, and um, my I had very nice parents. My father was a local businessman, and what had turned out to be extremely important uh, in my later life, he was um, he was a lay reader, and his knowledge of the Bible was absolutely tremendous. Um, my mother was perhaps one of the earliest lady cricketers. I have a photograph of her as captain of a local team uh, in the 1880s. And um, when you think of the fuss about letting ladies into the long room at Lord's, that may seem quite remarkable nowadays. (laughs) Anyhow, I I, I was brought up. um, What we called wireless was then in its infancy. Uh, One erected a scaffolding pole in the garden. I had a long wire stretched to another one. And with what was then a crystal set, one could just hear this remarkable voice of Tuello London calling. And I became quite interested in radio and quite soon began to build my own radio sets. And uh, 
uh, apart from that, and um, being uh, very keen on cricket, because my parents and uncles were, were keen cricketers, but but incidentally, although we had nets in our garden and I frequently bowled and batted against them there, I was never allowed to touch a cricket ball on Sundays. Um, <laughs> that indicates the strictness of the upbringing. Um, in fact, I on Sundays, um, I was expected to read nothing but the Bible, and um, I might say I, I did um, <laughs> creep away into the garden and read other things at times. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, fortunately, when I was about, I suppose, 10, 11, or 12, or whatever it was, a, um, a nearby school opened about two or three miles from where I was born, a place called Kingswood, which was a suburb of Bristol, and I, I was one of the first pupils of that school, and that's really how my r real education began. But I was, I was not a very good scholar. Uh, the um, early reports um, are perhaps unfortunately now in the archive <laughs> in the John Barnes <laughs> Library, <laughs> and uh, they testified to the fact that um, I was... Um, you know, quite keen on cricket and played cricket, and uh, and uh, that was that. And and it was spent a lot of time on, on radio sets. Uh, this continued until I entered the year of what was then called the school certificate. And by sheer chance, um, the physics master uh, organised a party to. Um, go to a series of public lectures in the University of Bristol. Now, I, I was, remember, quite a, a raw country boy. I'd scarcely ever been to a town like Bristol, and I'd certainly never been to a university. And the, the lectures he took us to was one by Professor A.M. Tyndall, who was then the professor of physics in the University of Bristol. And they were on the electric stop, on the electric spark. Well, that night I, I've never forgotten. Uh, it was a magnificent lecture room, and uh, I was absolutely fascinated by the by the electric sparks right across the lecture room, by the demonstrations of what I learned were infrared and ultraviolet light, by the hissing carbon arc of the, of the episcope and it was that one night that uh, turned me into a scientist I I came away and um, just wanted to be one of, become one of Tinder's students and uh, well two, 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 two years later in a number of horrible examinations I, I did become one of Tinder's students and that's how I entered the University of Bristol in uh, what would have been 1930, 1929, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, I, I might say that um, a few years ago, I told this story to a um, person who was in, in the Royal Society, and he said, oh yes, uh, those lectures were uh, given at the Royal Institution by Tyndall in um, in the 1920s and, and Tyndall had either been rehearsing them in these public lectures in Bristol or had been repeating them there anyhow that, that was my good fortune it was that which uh, turned me into a scientist <laughs>
So you stayed at Bristol for several years? Well, I, I, I graduated in Bristol in the, 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 um, the laboratory in Bristol, the H.H. Wills Physical Laboratory, uh, was uh, then a, a, a new building and altogether magnificent. And um, I um, went to regularly to all the lectures and, and did quite well. I, um, in school, I found mathematics difficult until uh, um, on one occasion... Um, someone came to see my father his name was Champion I don't know his Christian name and they were discussing some theological problem and uh, they, I must have, they must have seen me struggling with some problem now this man Champion turned out also to be a mathematician and he came to me and said well, what's your problem and I said I can't solve this problem in dynamics and he said oh it's perfectly easy and uh, so he showed me how to do it and then mathematics became easy, a matter of confidence. Uh, I was the only boy, I think, in the class who solved that particular problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so confidence is enormously important in one's life. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, in any case, I, I, I spent um, three years as a student in Bristol. Um, I, I think I worked hard. In fact, I do remember the um, captain of the cricket team I even remember his name, a man called Ridley, who came to me in the library one day and said, look here, Lovell, we, we hear you're quite a good cricketer. We're starting practice at Coombe Dingle. In two or three weeks, we expect you to join us. And I said, I'm very sorry. I've come to university to work, not to play cricket. <laughs> uh, that, that strikes me as extraordinary. Strikes me. Uh, I did, in fact, play for the university after a year or so. Well, I, I graduated at, um, I've forgotten the year, I think one graduated 18 or 18 or something like that, and, uh, and had a, uh, a research studentship, I think it was called the Colson Research Studentship. Then, then I, I again, was extremely fortunate. I was given a fascinating problem um, about um, the, the conductivity of, of, of thin metallic films. The, the problem was this, that um, if, one re, re, if one had an ordinary conductor uh, and but reduced its size until it was only a few atomic layers thick, then, then the good conductivity disappeared or the resistivity became very high. And the problem I was given was to find out why, why this happened. I had... Um, Good luck again, because at that time in Bristol, there was a man called Burrow, who was, I suppose, one of the finest glassblowers in the world. And in fact, he was the only one who, who was then working in, in, in Pyrex glass. And he, he built the most marvelous pieces of glass equipment for, to, to make this study. I worked in a very high vacuum and uh, had, had a small atomic gun and by heating, um, I used the alkali metals, rubidium and cesium, I could deposit um, layers on a glass surface across which I would measure the, the, the resistance. And, it, of course, the, the results were confirmed that um, until the layer got quite thick, the conductivity was very low. So I then um, 
surrounded the whole equipment with a, with a big oven. And um, the only complaint about was that I gather the smell of the asbestos or whatever was getting very hot rather created a, an unpleasant smell in the building. Anyhow, it turned out that um, the trouble was that if you deposited, no, the trouble, the answer was rather that if you deposited these films on, on a surface which had been baked out nearly to melting point for, for about 24 hours, then everything was all right. You got the good content of your surface. It's a matter of impurities on the surface causes. Well, I, I did this for a few years with various metals and published the papers. And um, do you want me to go on? To well, happen? I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a vote. <laughs> yeah, we, we're, I, think, I think we do, yeah. Um, I was going to ask, actually, what you... Uh, I mean, you spent a good few years at Bristol, your undergraduate studies and postgraduate studies, yeah. as, you've, as you've just been describing. So what was, it, what was it that actually brought you to Manchester, to Manchester University? Well, it wasn't any, 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 any knowledge of Manchester. I, <laughs> one day, uh, Tyndall, the professor, came to me, and I remember exactly where he, 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 he encountered me in, in the entrance to this magnificent building. He said, look here, Lovell, um, we think it's time you, you went somewhere else to, to, <laughs> to, to get a bit of competition. So I said, well, I don't want to go. I'm, I'm playing cricket for the university, and I'm working perfectly happy here. And he said, well, never mind. You, monsieur. And he said, there are two. Now, there are two people who want a young man. One is um, Patrick Blackett in London, and the other is Lawrence Bragg in Manchester. Well, you know, every young man then would have adored to work with Patrick Blackett. He was an heroic figure. He'd, um, he was a naval officer and fought in the Battle of Jutland. And uh, he then um, had resigned his commission and uh, quite accidentally had, had, had met Rutherford in Cambridge. And he resigned his commission and went as a student with Rutherford. And there, his career was quite extraordinary. He um, showed this marvelous photograph in the new cloud chamber of, of the disintegration of an atom. And, uh, and with Occhialini, uh, discovered the positive electron. So naturally, I desperately wanted to work with Blackett. Um, I, I remember it was a marvelous August day in Bath, and I was about to be engaged to the person who eventually became my wife, and I didn't want to leave Bath. I was due to play cricket the next day, so <laughs> I optimistically got on a train to London, expecting to return to Bath the same night. On the contrary, Blackett said, well, look, I'm interested in, you know, you'll be quite suitable, but I can't give you an answer because I, well, I must interview another young man called Wilson who is from Cambridge and has already experience of the cloud chamber technique. So I miserably got in a train at Euston and travelled to Manchester. Well, it was an August night and it was wet. <laughs> and um, I don't know, probably not many of you know what Manchester was like in those days. Uh, anyhow, I, I do remember standing outside the town hall um, 
waiting for some bus to take me to some place I'd been put up with, put up for the night. I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this is never coming to this place. <laughs> and the next day, I was interviewed by Bragg and his staff, and um, they, they offered me the job of assistant lecturer in Manchester. And I had the impertinence to say... And I, you know, I, I don't say this with with any pride now, because I was I was a young man, and uh, there there was Bragg already a Nobel laureate and a distinguished star, and I said, well, it's very kind of you. I hope I said it was very kind of you. <laughs> uh, I said, but I, I I really would rather work with Blackett in London. <laughs> and that, of course, was dynamite because uh, the relations between Bragg and Blackett were not all that smooth. Um, and then I, again, I'm just telling you what happened. I'm not saying this with any degree of pride at all. I, I, I returned to Bristol, and I met Professor Mott uh, in, in, in the university. He said, oh, congratulations, Lovell. I hear you've been offered the job in, in Manchester. And, he, and I said, yes, but I'm not going to go. <laughs> and he, he was astonished. He wouldn't believe it. He said, look here, he said, don't you believe that Manchester is the home of what was then the Guardian, furthermore, to the home of the Hadley Orchestra, and the Lancashire crew ground is in walking distance of the university. Mm-hmm. So I said, no matter, I'd, I'd rather work with Blackett in London. <laughs> then, um, retrospectively, to my dismay, I packed my bags and went on a cricket tour in Devon with the Bristol Optimists, uh, with this decision pending. And uh, Several days later, I got an urgent message from Bragg uh, demanding that I made a decision, otherwise they'd point, point someone else. And eventually it was Blackett himself who told Blagg that he was appointing Wilson. So I then reluctantly went to Manchester. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got to Manchester. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I... I had no intention of staying there, <laughs> but 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 here you see the, the magnetic attraction of Manchester. Here I am, you know, seventy eight years later, <laughs> still attached to university. So you, you were you were there a couple of years, I think. And I, I, did you eventually get to work on your your love? You were, you were interested in uh, in cosmic rays, I think. And you oh well, uh, the beginning was not very good because, um, very foolishly, I tried to carry on with my thin film work, which I've been doing in Bristol. Absolutely no facilities. Uh, there was a glassblower in some suburb. He was a one glassblower, um, and of course. The, the university was doing Bragg's work on crystallography, most distinguished work. But I, you know, I could not interest myself in crystallography. And um, I was saved by Douglas Hartree, who um, had already befriended the family. Now, Hartree was the professor of mathematics, and he had just built in the suburb of the physics department the um, famous differential analyzer. Uh, really the first integrating machine, a marvellous piece of machinery. And he said, well, I'd like to work with them on that, which I did. Mm. And um, so so I'm really very pleased to have worked with with Hartree for a year or so and with the person who actually made the differential, who who, um, another postgraduate, Arthur Porter, 
who's still alive. I still hear from him from America, and um, uh, that, that's how I was rescued. <clears throat> um, then, I the, the critical thing happened. Um, alas, uh, Lord Rutherford died, and uh, the question of who would accept the Cavendish Professorship arose. Um, well, in fact, um, it turned out to, to be to be Bragg. But before that, Bragg had gone to the National Physical Laboratory for a year, and uh, the, in that complex web of the 1937, 1936-1937, Black uh, succeeded Bragg in Manchester. Mm-hmm. So I had my desire working working <laughs> and he. Now, Hartree had told Blackett that um, I wasn't interested in, in, in crystallography and had been working with his machine. And Blackett said, well, if you send Lovell to London, uh, I have a, um, a, a, an expansion chamber, which is free, because um, he had a Chinese student, Hu Qian Shen, who had decided to return to China to take part in the, in the war against Japan. And so I traveled to London and returned with this wonderful, wonderful piece of equipment with the automatic mechanism devised by Blackett of the type he had used when working for Rutherford and in which he discovered the positive electron in, in, in Cambridge. And so that's how I entered the field of, of cosmic rays. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a, a very critical time in the, in the history of physics. The um, I can't. It's a rather a technical matter, but um, I was first of all given the job of of um, measuring the the um, of, of making a big magnet to surround the cloud chamber and measuring the curvature of the tracks in the chamber of the cosmic rays and 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 calculating their energy and um, the the major problem besetting the thing there was that the the, um, in Blackett's studies of the cosmic rays um, entering the Earth's atmosphere from outer space, uh, there was some anomaly. And Blackett believed that the, um, the high-energy theory was breaking down, or the, the conventional theory was breaking down high energies. Um, I won't go into the details, but uh, this turned out not to be the case and that um, what I was measuring was actually uh, the new particle, then called mesotrons, mm-hmm. now known as mesons, of which there are several, one of them, with, with a mass of about 180 times out of an electron. And there was one remarkable weekend conference in which extraordinary lot of distinguished people attended, including Heisenberg and people like that, you know. And I was a young man meeting these people you never forget meeting Heisenberg mm. and he <clears throat> and he, he it was he primarily who um, persuaded Blackett over the, that weekend that he, that he was wrong and that we were dealing with a new particle mm-hmm. and that the theory of high energy electrons was quite alright then I <clears throat> um, that, then he suggested I tackled the problem of um, of the highest energies of these cosmic rays coming from space. Because he, he was fascinated in the problem of the universe 
and of the energy in the universe. And there was no understanding whatsoever about the origin of the very high energy cosmic rays which were plunging into the atmosphere and <coughs> splitting up the atoms into, into positive and negative electrons. And I worked with, um, with Ludwig Jarnaschy, a Hungarian refugee, um, studying these high energy cosmic rays showers. And um, he had enormous blocks of, of lead and Geiger counters uh, to absorb these high energy particles. I think it was one, one was more straightforward. Wilson and I uh, built, well, we had two cloud chambers and we, we separated them more and more into one room and then to another room and measured these high energy showers um, in these two cloud chambers um, um, went simultaneously. We, um, we we did we did we did publish a paper on that, but other things had intervened by the time that paper mm -hmm. was published. And I'll take you to the next stage of my career. Um, in 1939, <coughs> the beginning of 1939, uh, Blackett said, "I think it would be very interesting if you took this equipment to a high altitude to study these particles in greater detail." And he'd arranged for me to um, put this equipment, build this equipment into a small van. <coughs> and he'd spoken to Pierre Auger in Paris, whom I ha who had I had met in Manchester. And he, because Auger had had discovered these extensive air showers, and he'd arranged for me to drive this van, calling in at Paris uh, and picking up Auger and going to the Peak Jumidi in the French Pyrenees at high altitude. Well, in August of 1939, in early August of 1939, I suppose it was you know, about this time of the month, I uh, was had, had this van outside the, the physics department then in Coupland Street, preparing to drive it to... Uh, to Paris and then on to the Pete and I was summoned urgently to the telephone and this was Blackett speaking from London and his message was Lovell you are on no account to start on that journey we have another job for you well now the interesting thing is that uh, Blackett was frequently absent from the physics department in Manchester and we naturally thought that he was attending conferences in London or elsewhere. Not at all, in fact. He was one of the critical members of the committee, known as the Tizard Committee, under Sir Henry Tizard, who had been charged with the task of studying some means of defending the country against enemy bombers. And um, it, was, it was that committee, in fact, that's uh, another part of the story, um, which initiated the device which is now known as radar. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, th that's that's the end of my pre-war story. Mm -hmm. So you, so you, <laughs> <laughs> rather long, but I'm afraid. <laughs> so you, I mean, you were summoned off to work on to work in the war effort. Then were you to join the army or? I was sent to <clears throat> um, the east coast to Baltimore Manor, of which. 
astonishingly, you know, those of us young knew absolutely nothing about. And I thought we had one of the finest labs in Europe, but my goodness, I mean, we were sort of in the Iron Age compared with what I encountered there. <laughs> and this was, uh, we had absolutely, it was such a secret, had no idea whatsoever uh, that uh, something called, it was not then called radar, it was then called radiolocation existed. Now, at Ballsy Manor, um, they had the, the first uh, transmitter, great transmitter, which became one of the chain home stations which operated and saved us in the Battle of Britain. And so that's how I entered the field of radar. And um, But I was still a student in the, in, in the University of Manchester. But um, w when... Do you want me to go on? Well, there was an incident at the beginning of the war, I think, that yeah. perhaps... Uh, well, I... I um, um, as, as part of our training in radar, um, I was sent to to one of the operational uh, radar defence stations at a place called Saxton Wold, uh, near Scarborough. And, um, I mean, the whole thing was, was tremendously impressive. Um, the great transmitters evacuated an enormous 360-foot aerials on steel towers. And um, I was there when, um, on that historic day when Prime Minister Chamberlain announced on the radio at about 11 o'clock in the morning that we were at war with Hitler. So mm. now there, there, there have, thereby hangs another story. <laughs> thereby hangs what became the beginning of Jodhpur. Mm. Yeah. So how, how, did, how did that arise then? What did you see there that, uh, that led to your work yeah. later here at Jodhpur? As, as Chamberlain was speaking, I happened to be then to be in the operations room and um, the, the cathode ray tube was a mass of, of echoes. And I, I said to the operator, uh, the, the, look, we're about to be bombed. Masses of German aircraft are coming into England. And he, he said, oh, no, they're not echoes from aircraft. They're what we call ionosphere. And um, then that really was the beginning of Jordan because years and years later uh, I began to investigate these echoes. But so, I'm afraid the war intervened before then. Yeah. So that was the first part of an interview with Sir Bernard. And as Dave mentioned earlier, we will be sending out the second and third parts of that interview in future episodes of the Jodcast. And it's a great story, isn't it? It is. It is fascinating. The sheer amount of work and energy that Sir Bernard's put in over the last 50 years. And you can still see that energy and confidence in his uh, everyday life now. He still comes into work. He still shows up, reads papers. He's working on his memoirs at the moment, I understand. So he's still very, very active and he's got wonderful stories to tell and you can hear more about those stories in the future parts of the interview great stuff looking forward to it now from one person who's been looking at the sky for over 50 years to another here's the night sky with ian morrison as we move into september uh, the nights are drawing in we have a bit more chance to see the sky and hopefully if the jet stream moves a bit further north as it seems to be doing now at the end of august we might actually have some clearer skies. I've barely seen the sky 
in the last couple of months. In the south, as the sun sets, there's a very lovely region of the sky which includes the constellations of Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila. The brightest stars of these, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra and Altair in Aquila, make up what Patrick Moore called the Summer Triangle. A nice thing to do is to take a pair of binoculars and work your way up from Altair to Vega, about a third of the way. And with a bit of luck, you'll see an upside-down coat hanger. It's formerly called Brocky's Cluster. Quite a nice little asterism of stars. Um, Cygnus, the most obvious stars, form what is called the Northern Cross. But on a dark sky, you can see the outer stars that make up the extension to the wings. Deneb, the bright star, is the tail. Albireo, which is the head of the swan, is in fact a lovely double star, a beautiful object to see in a small telescope. One star is sort of a goldeny red colour, and the others are sort of a blue. It's a very nice colour contrast. If you're looking between Deneb and Altair, drop your eye down a little bit, and if it's dark, you should see a rather sweet little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. A little triangle of stars make up the head and a single star sort of the tail. But it's actually rather nice, it's just like a dolphin leaping out of the sea. Now, coming into prominence in the later evening in the south is the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, which actually is upside down. The four stars that make up the body are called the square of Pegasus. And how many stars you can see in that square is a very good indication of how dark the sky is, and also your own eyesight. And if you can see four or more, in fact, you're doing quite well. The top left-hand star of Pegasus is actually, uh, of the square of Pegasus, is shared with Andromeda. It's called Alpha Andromedae. And it's a good starting point to find another object you can see easily with binoculars or even with your unaided eye. And that's the Andromeda galaxy M31. Start from that top left-hand star, curve to the left and up a bit two bright stars, then turn sharp right, Go one bright star and the same distance again, and you should see a white little fuzzy glow. And that's the core of the Andromeda galaxy. Now, above the Andromeda galaxy and above that constellation is the W-shaped constellation Cassiopeia. If you take the lower three, the lower right three stars of Cassiopeia, they form a sort of a pointer. And if you follow that pointer's direction, you also come to the Andromeda galaxy. That's two ways to find it. This is called star hopping, when you go from one star to another to find what you want. To the left of Cassiopeia is the constellation of Perseus, and again this is a lovely rich region of the Milky Way, and halfway between the two is a very lovely object for binoculars or a small telescope. It's called the double cluster, two clusters of stars which you can see together in the same field of view. Very, very pretty. So there we have the basic stars that you can see easily in the evening during September. What about the planets? Well, we've been seeing Jupiter during the summer. It's been one of the highlights of the summer. And it'll be seen in the southwest as the sun sets at the beginning of the month. It's really the last month we can be able to observe it well for a while. It shines with a magnitude of minus 2.1, so it's quite bright. And it's above and to the left of the red star Antares in Scorpius. The disk is now about 35 arc seconds across, and you can still see detail like the equatorial bands. Sadly, Jupiter now lies in almost the most southerly point 
of the ecliptic, the part of the sky, in the constellation of Ophiuchus, a little part actually that dips down between Scorpius and Sagittarius. This means it's not very high in the sky and the atmosphere degrades our view. We'll have to wait a few years until it climbs higher up into the sky. So that's Jupiter, an evening object setting nearer the time that the sun sets towards the end of the month. If you have a small telescope or even binoculars resting, say, on a wall to study them, you should easily spot the four Galilean moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto, discovered by Galileo in 1610. Well, what about Saturn, the other of the giant planets? Well, it's um, only visible, in fact, in the morning, in the pre-dawn sky. Um, it's very close to the star Regulus in Leo, and in fact, on September the 2nd, they're within a degree of each other. They gradually move apart, and by the end of the month, Saturn is about 3.6 degrees to the lower left of Regulus. It's at magnitude plus 0.6, rising a bit during the month. Not actually as bright as we sometimes see it, because the rings, which reflect quite a lot of the light, are in fact closing. They're not more than much more than about 9 degrees away from the actual line from the Saturn to the Earth. And so there's less apparent reflecting area. If you've got a small telescope, you should be able to see its moon Titan, and maybe even some bands around the surface. But as the month goes by, Saturn gradually rises earlier than the Sun and will start getting better in a few months' time. Mercury. Uh, Mercury passed behind the Sun on August the 15th and is now just about visible in the evening sky about 20 to 30 minutes after sunset. This time round is actually very low above the horizon, not easy to spot. Um, to get any sort of chance, get to a location with a very low western horizon and be there in time to see the sunset, so you know where the sun set. With binoculars, if you then sweep just above the horizon to the left, you may have a chance to actually see Mercury, magnitude about minus 0.5. It'll be in the west at the beginning of September, and the west-southwest as the month ends. Mars is in Taurus for most of the month. It's now rising around 10 p.m., and, and gets to an elevation of about 40 degrees above the south-southeast in the hours before dawn. Its disk is currently about 8 arc seconds across, and it shines with a magnitude of plus 0.3. But as it's nearing the Earth, the brightness will actually get to about minus 0.1, and the disk almost up to 10 arc seconds by the end of the month. And under good conditions, you can actually see the polar caps and Certis Major, which is a prominent dark marking on the surface, with a small telescope. Uh, Mars is going to be a highlight of the winter months as it reaches opposition, that's when it's nearest to us, in December. Uh, Venus is a morning object and may be spotted low in the northeast at magnitude minus 4.4 just before dawn at the beginning of the month. Its disk is about 53 arc seconds across. Now, during the month, it will rise earlier. Its brightness rises to its maximum of about minus 4.8. That's pretty bright. And that's on the 21st. It becomes quite easy to see as it rises perhaps three hours before the sun. Uh, at the beginning of the month, the telescope will show a thin crescent. And during the month, that gradually fills out until about one third of Venus's now shrinking disk is illuminated at the month's end. So there are the planets. So we have something to look at, but for a couple of them, you've either got to stay up late or get up early in the morning. 
Well, finally, are there any highlights for this month? Well, perhaps not as many as we've had in some of the previous months this year. I have mentioned that it's actually often to have a, a good to have a look at the moon, and particularly around first quarter. And that's on September the 19th. This is when the Terminator is going vertically up and down. And along the Terminator, there are some lovely craters that sharp very well because of the long shadows cast by the, the sunlight. So a good time to look at the moon is around the 19th of September. Well, there are a couple of nice skyscapes. That's when you get a nice little conjunction of objects in the sky. And there's just two of those I'd like to mention to finish up. On September the 4th, if you care to stay up to about one o'clock in the morning, then in fact, we have a very pretty view of the moon above Mars and both of these to the left of the Pleiades and the Hyades clusters in Taurus. Pleiades is a little lovely cluster of about seven stars. It's often called the Seven Sisters, although you'll usually either see about five or, or perhaps more with a telescope or binoculars. And the Hyades is a much nearer cluster, and that forms the head of Taurus the Bull and the red star called Aldebaran, which you see in the same direction of Hyades, although it's not part of the cluster is in fact the eye of the bull. Well, Mars you'll see just to the, the left of Aldebaran. The moon on the 4th about 1am will be above it, and to the right and up will be the Pleiades. In fact, the previous night, September the 3rd, the moon and the Pleiades are very, very close in the sky, so that might be worth looking at as well. So that's if you can step to about 1 o'clock on the 4th of September. Now, if you can get up early, before dawn on September the 9th, then we have a very thin crescent moon, which is up and to the left of the very bright planet Venus. And below to the lower left of the moon, you'll see Saturn and Regulus about 0.8 degrees apart. So we have a nice skyscape there, a thin crescent moon, Venus, Saturn and Regulus. So there are some things to look at. Let's hope we have some clear skies so we can see them. Thanks, Ian. And of course, more from him next month. Now, something very interesting happened to us just last week. Yes, we were stars. Well, at stars at 10 to 3 in the morning. Well, yes, there's a room. We were invited by uh, Chris Valence of Radio 5 Live to go and talk to him about the Jodcast. So, so listeners who have joined us after listening to Chris's pods and blogs segment on Radio 5 Live, hello, welcome to the Jodcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah, we hope you keep listening to our future episodes. And for those of you who are um, interested in other pods and blogs and do listen to Chris's show, should be available on Listen Again service from the BBC. And it's also a podcast as well. Is it? Yeah. Excellent. Well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. As why well. not? Check out the show notes for Chris Valence's pods and blogs. And of course, if you have recently just come to us, then if you're getting withdrawal symptoms, there is about 25 hours worth of uh, of material up there in the archives of the Jodcast. So do feel free to go along and have a listen. www.jodcast.net and follow the archive link. Unfortunately, though, that brings this issue of the Jodcast to an end. Join us in mid-September when we will have the second part of that interview with Sir Bernard Lovell, and also Ask an Astronomer, 
with Tim and Nick. Yeah, looking forward to it already. Before we go, thanks to you two, Nick Stewart, and to Gregor Morphil, Tim O'Brien, and of course to Sir Bernard Lovell, and thanks to Megan for the news. The intro and outro are mixed by Tom Backus of Pendant Audio, and no attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to Monty Python, which of course remains the property of the Monty Python people. So that's it from us. Do tune in again, so to speak, uh, for the September extra edition of the Jodcast. Yep, until then, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Stop that. It's silly. Just come along. Move along. Nothing to see. Move along.